from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Friends, our first scripture reading this morning is Psalm 133. Please listen for God's word to you and to me this morning. How very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down upon the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down over the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord ordained his blessing, life forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I, I want to welcome all the children who are with us today. I know we have some who are going to be a part of Godly Play. If you are going to be part of Godly Play, you can go meet Miss Sarah Kate, our Director of Children's Ministry over here. Town's this way, bud. Come on down. There you go. It's so good to see all the children with us. It's been great to have you back in worship too. And we hope you have a blessed time in, in godly play. Our second text uh, is also from the lectionary, just like Psalm 133, the text that Lee read for us. Acts 4, 32 to 35, a short text, uh, but a powerful one nonetheless. Gives uh, us a glimpse into uh, life in the post-Easter church and gives us an opportunity to consider what our life might look like as a post-Easter church. Now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was no needy person among them, for as many as owned lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, in this Easter tide season, we pray that you break open this word afresh to us, that it would speak to us, challenge us, form us, and shape us to be the people you're calling us to be, to be a part of the continuation of that apostolic witness, the way of being community that pleases you and edifies us and blesses the world. We pray that you'd meet us in this moment for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. <clears throat> Dr. Tony Campolo was a mentor and professor of mine during my undergraduate years at Eastern University. He was both a sociologist and a Baptist preacher. He received a doctoral degree from the University of Pennsylvania and was ordained in a church in Philadelphia as a licensed Baptist minister. 
Dr. Campolo used to say that when he was traveling by plane or train and the person sitting next to him uh, would want to strike up a conversation by asking him what he did for a living, he answered in a way that was dependent upon how he was feeling in that particular moment. If he wanted to talk to the person next to him, he would say, I teach sociology at a small liberal arts college just outside of Philadelphia. He said, if I didn't want to talk to, uh, to them, he would say, I'm a Baptist preacher. And that ended the conversation right there. In one of Dr. Campolo's most memorable sermons, of which there are many, uh, he talks about an annual tradition at his church in West Philadelphia. It's called Mount Carmel Baptist Church, and it's a historic black church. Dr. Campolo was the only white pastor on staff, serving in a very part-time and limited role while he taught full-time at the university. So Mount Carmel had this tradition that each and every year would honor its high school seniors during a worship service, a service that was planned to coincide with the graduation season. The seniors would sit in the front pews and one by one they would come up to the pulpit and they would share of, of their successes and, and their achievements during their high school years. They would talk about what they accomplished and then they would share what it is they were going to do in that upcoming year, college or university or the workforce or military service. And as each student came to the pulpit and each student shared what they had accomplished and what they would be doing into the future, adulation and praise were shouted out from the congregation. Amens and, and thank you, Jesuses, and joy-filled groans and moans and claps flowed freely from the congregation, covering each child that spoke. Dr. Campolo said that after the, the seniors had, had all shared and the adulation began to die down, as the frenzy began to, to die down, the senior minister climbed into the pulpit. He was austere. He was solemn. He began his sermon with a certain sternness in his voice. And he looked at the graduating class sitting in these uh, front pews and he said to them, children, children, one day you're going to die. It's not what they expected to hear following all the praise and adulation that came upon them. It was like a lead balloon had landed in their, their midst. Children, he said, you're going to die someday. That's right, you're going to die. And I know you can't imagine it right now. You can't imagine dying. But one of these days, they're going to take you to the cemetery. They're going to drop you in a hole. They're going to cover your casket with dirt and then go back to the church and eat potato salad. So I want you to think about something this morning. When you were born, you were the only one who cried. And everybody else was happy. But that's not what's important now. Here's what's important. When you die, will you be the only one who's happy while everybody else cries? And that's gonna depend on what you're living for, on what you care about, on what you make as the center of your life. Are you trying to just live life to get all these accomplishments, seeking praise and adoration? Are you going to make your life only about 
collecting titles, bachelor degrees, master's degrees, PhDs? Is that what your life is going to be about, collecting titles? Or is it going to be about collecting testimonies? Repeatedly in the rhythm of black preaching, he went back and forth asking them, is it going to be titles or testimonies? Titles or testimonies? Titles or testimonies? And then he swept through the Bible from Genesis to the book of Revelation in one five-minute majestic run. He said, Pharaoh had the title ruler of Egypt. Now that's a good title. But when it was all over, all Pharaoh had was a, was a title. He had a title, but Moses had a testimony. There was Queen Jezebel. That's a good title, queen. She was going to destroy Elijah, the, the prophet of God. But when it was over, all Jezebel had was a, a title. She had the title, but Elijah had the testimony. And he called out to the church to, to respond to each one of these characters. He said, then there was King Darius, good title, king. He threw Daniel into the lion's den, but when it, was, when it was all over, all he had was the title. Darius had a title, but Daniel had the testimony. Pilate had a title. Governor, that's a good title. But when Jesus rose from the dead, all Pilate had was a title, and Jesus had a testimony. And he closed the sermon by saying, when it's all over for you and they lay you in your grave, what will you have? Do you want a tombstone with all your accomplishments, all your titles, or do you want people standing around your grave giving testimonies about how you love them? Testimonies about how you cared for them in the way of Jesus Christ. Testimonies about how you made a difference in their lives. He said, children, I, I wish for you both titles and testimonies. But if you have to make a choice, if you have to make a choice, go for the testimony. It's a great reminder that, that Christians go for testimonies. We go for testimony. Testimony, friends, in our faith tradition simply means that we're seeking to tell the truth about who God is. Testimony is a simple act where we put to words or to action where we see God working and moving in our lives. In Acts 4, we read as much. It says, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. The witness of the apostles, friends, had no agenda but to tell the story of what God had done in Jesus Christ and what God was doing right there in real time in the midst of their community. That's testimony, plain and simple. It's speaking honestly. It's speaking transparently of how God is showing up in your life and how God is showing up in the life of the community, how God is showing up in the life of the world. Testimony tells the story of how God made a way when there was no way in your life. Testimony tells the story of, of the grace she needed to forgive herself. Testimony tells the story of God's faithfulness and steadfast love in the unquenchable heartache of burying a child. Testimony tells the story of how God provided for him 
in his most desperate hour. Testimony tells the story of God's rescue out of addiction or self-hatred or apathy or purposelessness. That's testimony giving voice and action to what God is actively doing and what God has done for you and for the life of the world. But testimony, friends, I think it's important as we come through this Easter season, as we enter into this Easter tide, it's important to remember that testimony is not just about the individual. Testimony is not just reserved for individual people who are reflecting on God's goodness and grace in their life. Testimony is actually and can be an act of the whole community. It can be an act of the whole body. There is such a thing as communal witness, as communal testimony. Remember how it reads, with great power, the apostles gave their testimony. It doesn't say that there was one apostle or a few apostles. It says all of the apostles collectively were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The witness these first Christians had was communal. It was a collective witness. And I think we would do well as Easter people, as the church of Jesus Christ. I think we'd do well to take a cue from them. I think we do well to affirm that we have a shared and collective testimony as the body of Christ. You know, Western Christianity can be so highly individualistic. It can be all about me and God and my testimony. But what I think this text is inviting us into is to see ourselves as part of something greater than the individual. That we're part of a collective witness, a collective testimony. And we practice this, right? I mean, we do this week in and week out, whether you're remote or you're here in person. We do it in worship. We rehearse this witness each and every week, right? We, we gather together to do what? To tell the story of God. To reflect in prayer and in liturgy and in song and in, and in sermon that, that God's been faithful even through the darkest of hours. Every time we baptize a a child or, or an adult at this font, we're, we're actually practicing collective testimony. Every time we break bread at this table and share in the Lord's Supper, we, we're practicing a collective testimony. We're saying something together to one another and to the world. The way we understand God working and the way we understand the world works, or at least ought to work. And one of the most striking features, I think, of the of the early church's testimony is really how they cared for one another in need. You know, there's nowhere in the book of Acts, and as a good Presbyterian, I've tried to find it, there's, there's nowhere in the book of Acts where they formed an evangelism committee to try to figure out how to grow their membership. There's no place in the book of Acts. They, they don't love each other because they're trying to grow the church. They don't love each other because they have a, a church growth strategy. They bought in a consultant and said, yeah, you know what might work? And they said, what, free wine after service? No. You know what might work? Is love. That you love one another. Jesus said as much, right? That people will know that you're my followers, that you're my friends, by the way you care for one another, by the way you love one another. It wasn't evangelism. It wasn't a growth, church growth strategy. It was, it was faithfulness. That's what that was. It was faithfulness to the God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, who proclaimed that we belong to him even as we belong to each other. 
And how the church loved one another, and isn't this interesting, how the church loved one another, how they loved one another is how they actually grew in number. Just by believing that they belong to each other. Loving one another as the body of Christ. The early church, I think, was rooted in the imagination of Psalm 133, the psalm that Lee read for us, and, and its celebration of the unity and the togetherness of the family of God. And Lord knows in this broken time where families are, are breaking apart, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had where politics or conspiracy theories or, or, or theology is, is literally tearing families apart and churches apart and, and communities apart, that there's another way that Easter people live with each other. They choose each other. This church, this early church, sold their possessions. They, they pooled their wealth to meet whatever need was right in front of them. They became this collective witness to God's grace in their life by extending that same grace to one another. This past week, and I want to close with this story. This past week, I've seen a compelling and heartfelt example of this kind of communal testimony in the life of our own church and our own congregation. And I share this story almost as a demonstration of, of practicing what I'm preaching this morning to, to, to kind of reveal or to put before you what collective testimony might look like in our midst. Some of you know this story already. Some of you are gonna learn about it for the first time. There's a woman in our congregation. Her name is Mary Busco. She served on session as an elder, and currently she serves as the lead layperson, the lead ministry leader for our congregational care ministry. And she works closely then with Rob Sparks and Katie Sundermeyer, two of our pastors, in exercising that work. On Holy Saturday, the day before Easter, Mary, who's a wife and a mother of two teenage girls, had a traumatic stroke. Mary has been the picture of health. She's a vibrant person with a vibrant faith. And she was in Dillard's at the Perimeter Mall. She was just simply shopping, I think, for one of her daughter's prom needs. And when all of a sudden, in an instant, paralysis came over her, the left side of her body. And and she lost the ability to speak with any sort of sense or coherence. Employees from the store came to her aid immediately. They sat her in a chair and they called an ambulance. And at Dillard's, not too far from where she was, there was a Pentecostal pastor who happened to just be shopping on Holy Saturday. And she saw Mary in distress and immediately, as she would say later and share later in a Facebook post, she, she, she moved to Mary immediately because she felt that's where God was and that's where God wanted her. And she literally embraced her as, as her health was declining and as things were deteriorating right there in the moment. And she had a sense that, that this moment was dire. And so she, as they say, stood in the gap and prayed for her. She prayed that the ambulance would arrive with haste and that God would keep Mary alive so that the medical professionals could come to her aid. And that's exactly what happened. She stayed alive. 
They rushed her to the hospital, and following a life-saving surgery, word spread throughout our church about Mary that she was in critical condition in the ICU. A meal train was started online, and I kid you not, in about an hour, it was filled up. A woman in our church who's part of our prayer shawl ministry finished a prayer quilt for Mary. These shawls and these quilts, they, they'll, they'll, they'll cover people in need. They'll cover them in need, and, and they'll be reminded of the prayer that went into that and the prayer that continues for them in their moment. Prayer chains were started throughout the congregation. Texts and calls and care packages came to Mary's husband and her two daughters. As I said, Mary is in the ICU right now in critical condition with her husband, Eric. Eric texted me this morning after the 9.30 service letting me know that they had watched together over the live stream. Well, yesterday, Eric reached out to Katie and me asking if we could share in, in some uh, prayer time over our phones, over FaceTime. In these days of COVID, it's been impossible for clergy to get in and to, to pray. And so much of our prayer times have come in this form, in this fashion. Mary and Eric also belong to a group in the church with nine other couples. Some of them are here actually today in worship. And at 3.30 yesterday, we all committed at 3.30 that those nine couples would pray with us as we were patched into that ICU room at Emory Hospital to see Mary and to see Eric and to pray for her and with them. And so we prayed for comfort we prayed that her breathing tube could be removed as the next step in her recovery process, that she wouldn't need a tracheotomy. And we prayed with boldness, friends, I mean boldness, that God would work a miracle. That in the name of Jesus Christ, Mary would be healed, trusting that in life and in death that Mary belongs to God. Trusting that that same promise is true for each and every one of us. Eric sent us a text yesterday, and he, and he wrote these words. He said, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your support, along with the staff and what feels like the entire congregation who has come alongside of us. He said, what Mary lacks, listen to this, friends, what Mary lacks in her physical well-being is much outweighed by the support she has to be feeling in these very hours. Support I feel in the very depths of my being. Friends, this is collective testimony. This is not the exception, this is not the rule. And I know and I suspect that there are some of you here in the sanctuary, that there are some of you tuning in via live stream or on demand or on television who are suspicious that such things can be possible for you and for me, that such a community can actually exist. That such a way of being human and being a Christian can actually be embodied, can actually be made manifest in real time in our lives. And look, I can't speak for every church, but I can speak for this one, that this is what we are living into. This is the embodiment of faith that we're called to possess for one another. That one member's need is our need. That one member's grief is our grief. That one member's prayer is our prayer. That one member's hope is our hope. That's what it means to be part of the apostolic witness. That's what it means to give testimony as a body, as the church. You know, the word testimony, this may be 
old news for some of you. It may be news, new news for others. The word testimony in Greek actually is the word for martyr. It's the word for martyr. And what does a martyr do? A martyr actually embodies their words in their actions. And that's what it means to be the church. To be part of this apostolic witness that even in the darkest hours that we face, to be the church for one another. To give witness and testimony that God has raised Jesus from the dead and that God is still working miracles in this world and God will bring us all home for eternity and life with God forevermore. I'm gonna close this sermon in a way that is a bit unusual. It's not the way I typically close sermons. In just a moment, Lee is gonna come to the pulpit and she's gonna continue uh, with our pastoral prayer and into the Lord's prayer. But, but before she comes up, I wanna invite you to take a posture of prayer. And I'd like to invite you to hold in your heart or in your mind or in your hands the name of someone who's in a dark place, who's in a dark hour, that we collectively as the church can lift them up, not just as individuals, but as a whole. And I just want you to hold their names in your hearts, in your minds, in your hands, and bring them to God in the silence of your hearts. And then I wanna lift those names that God knows up as well. But I also wanna lift up Mary in this moment. I, I think and I feel called that this is a time to, to pray for her as, as a collective, as a whole. I invite you to do that with me now. So let's take a posture of prayer. Let's take a moment of silence and let us lift the names of those we know need God's intervention, need God's movement and grace in their life. Lord, we pray for all of these names that we lift up, that we hold, that have come to us by the gift of your spirit. We pray that you would be God in these people's lives and for them, that you would make a way when there's no way, that you'd bring healing where there needs to be healing, where you bring comfort and, and a sense of peace in the midst of horrific or terrible news. And we pray for Mary Busco. We pray for Eric and Harper and May. We pray for her parents and extended family. We pray for all who are privileged enough to call her friend. And we ask, oh God, that you would intervene in her life right now in that hospital room, that you would bring wholeness and healing to her, that you would bring the peace which surpasses all understanding, and that your will would be done in her life. We know that in life and in death, she belongs to you. And in life and in death, we belong to you. And so we are confident in making this prayer for we know that you are a good God and that you hear every prayer. And so we continue in this time of prayer as we stay in this posture and move our requests and our desires in front of you.